You're listening to a podcast from www.aussiewriters.com.au where we celebrate talented Australian writers and their books. Well, welcome to our listeners. I'm um, broadcasting today from Canberra, of course, and I've come across through TEDx Canberra, a fantastic performer and writer that I hadn't heard of before. And you know that I get very excited when I find Australian talent that needs to be spread. Um, but he is quite famous. And his name is Fred Smith. Welcome. Thank you. Fred Smith, it's sort of unpromising, isn't it? Oh, it's wonderful. I think it's a fantastic stage name. And um, I tell you what, it's one of those plain and simple names, but there's nothing plain and simple about this man. <laughs> you are not, not plain and simple. But it's, it's a catchy name. And t- tell us about how you came up with it, because it's not your real name. Oh, it was nailed to my forehead at boarding school. Oh. Yeah, none of us got out of boarding school with our own names, and, and Fred was on the moderate list uh, compared to what others got. Oh, right. And uh, any reason? Do you, do you know what you know? Why they called you Fred? Was there was there? Uh, well, my last name is Smith, but uh, I just sat at the wrong place at the wrong time, and someone said Fred passed the milk, and I made the mistake of passing the milk, and uh, it hence it stuck. It stuck. <laughs> it stuck. Actually, you um, your background is um, are or still a public servant. Um, in Canberra working for Foreign Affairs, is that correct? That's right, I joined the Foreign Affairs Department in 1996. So you've been there a long, long time. Mm, 20 years, but around that time I started writing songs uh, and, you know, I was uh, sort of torn between a promising diplomatic career and an unpromising career as a folk singer. Uh, and um, uh, at various points... Or a poor struggling artist. (laughs) (laughs) At various points... uh, the situation seemed to call for me to make a decision between those two um, mm-hmm. two paths, but I, um, uh, whenever I approached a, a fork in the road, I mm-hmm. simply ignored it and ploughed on over the railing into the nature strip, and uh, right. and I've ended up with two two sort of streams to my existence. Yeah, and but they're both very interesting. I mean, I can understand why you would continue your work with foreign affairs because um, that's what has been responsible for this terrific book we're going to talk about. Um, But I came across Fred at um, TEDx Canberra, where he performed the most amazing um, musical (laughs) numbers. And um, your songwriting is really quite extraordinary, because it's, it's, you had them laughing, I think you had them thinking, and that's really important. Um, Tell me about this musical talent of yours were you you know in the school band and you know were you a musical student at school i was having guitar lessons but i was one of the less promising musicians at school uh in in a year group of very capable musicians actually um so you didn't feel confident when you were at school with this oh you know i was adequate but songwriting is a different business from being a musician it's a it's it's a different approach yes I i i think the um I mean, the music's fabulous, but I think the the real strength is the um, songwriting and the, and your um, gift with words. I think that's yeah. Well, it's a, at its best, it's an exercise in storytelling, uh, although a very compressed one. You know, yes. um, so four or five minutes generally. Yes. Um, uh, and you've got to get a lot done very quickly. Yes. And make it rhyme. 
<laughs> which is really tough, <laughs> not an easy task. Fred, but I we... think all good art happens mm-hmm. in the face of constraints. You know, writing a book yes. in some ways harder because it's a more open-ended thing. Yes, and of course you put your 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 life. It's it's quite a, a risky business writing books because you yeah. put your soul on the line. Don't totally, you? yeah. No, a, a song is a uh, a song is a moving target, whereas a book is a sitting duck. Yes, yes. Um, but I mean, I think it's a great combination, and for writers out there who are great performers, I think it's a real good ad- avenue to sell your books because you know you engage with people. They they get to know, like and trust you and then of course they're going to buy your book, whatever it's on. Luckily, it's a really good book. (laughs) It's got, it's it's a a book of substance about an issue that is quite a serious issue. Mm. Um, Although your songs I found were were quite amusing and, uh, you know, there was a real you had the, the audience in stitches. If if anyone uh, checks out TEDx Canberra 2016, you'll see a video of um, that performance, and it it's just remarkable. But let's get on to the to the book. Um, this book came about because of a, a, an opportunity you had to um, to go to a place called Urzgan. Did I say that correctly? Close enough. <laughs> And um, I'm just going to read from this book. It's, it's called The Dust of Uruzgan, and it says, The first comprehensive on-the-ground account of Australia's mission in Afghanistan, making sense of that country and that war one song at a time. You know, it's an issue that we know so little about because the media is fairly... I don't think the media knows a lot about it either, um, about our engagement over there. So... Tell, tell us how you, you got to go over there. What, what was the situation? Well, it's a long story, but in, mm. to cut it short, um, the international community, uh, including Australia and, and the Americans and the Brits, we all went into Afghanistan in 2001, mm. about a month after 9-11, um, to um, sever the connection, I suppose, between the Taliban and al-Qaeda. But of course, you know, uh, we were coming in after many years of conflict, and mm. and um, and um, there was a lot. Afghanistan had a lot of problems, and um, mm. um, and then of course we got caught up in Iraq, and other things happened. And by two thousand five, the Taliban were back and resilient in certain parts of Afghanistan, and so the international community started to send more troops in, and. Australia was drawn uh, was drawn into working in a province called Uruzgan alongside the Dutch in 2006 mm-hmm. as a junior partner. But then around 2009, the overall international community strategy shifted to something they called counterinsurgency, mm-hmm. um, which in short meant that the focus was less on mm-hmm. smoting the Taliban and more on protecting the population and winning the support of the population for the government. Uh, and obviously finding political solutions. What we know about these fragile and conflict-affected states is that if there's no political solution, there's no military solution. Mm. Uh, you can't fight your way to, to victory in these situations. And so diplomats uh, were increasingly sent to work alongside their their militaries. I mean, it's the ideal solution, a diplomatic solution, but it's just not always possible, is it? Well, um no, it's not always possible. You know, there are some irreconcilable differences occasionally, but mm. um, but 
you know you can't fight your way to to success in these places either you need a military presence you need to you, you need to win the, the military struggle but it's an, it's a necessary but not sufficient condition for mm. for a satisfactory outcome and so anyway mm. uh, in April of 2009 Kevin Rudd announced that Australia would be sending diplomats in and I put my hand up and uh, was the first Australian diplomat to be sent to work in southern Afghanistan alongside our troops in Uruzgan. It's, it's a very brave uh, move on your part. Were, were you not worried for your safety or, you know, I mean, did you consider it very carefully or was it, a, was, it was it something that was an impulsive thing that, yes, this is an adventure? Uh more, more the latter. I, I think I was a little afraid. Uh, you know, certainly when I agreed to take the job, every time something came on the news about a soldier being killed, it it it, it got me a little edgy. But um, mm. I've done these sort of things before in Bougainville and Solomon's and enjoyed them. Right, right. Um, so you're, are but, you and one also, of those you know, adrenaline-driven type people? Who no, I don't think I am. No? Yeah, no, I don't think I am. Uh, but I, I don't like desk work. <laughs> Fair enough, <laughs> which is why your second uh, second string <laughs> is is a good uh, a good choice for you. Um, so when you arrived there, was it um, was it what you expected, or or was there a bit of culture shock there, or what what were the things you mentioned something at TEDx about some of the things that you noticed when you first went there? Tell us about that. Well, yeah, very dusty. You know, we landed in this sort of on, on a military base in a kind of lunar landscape. The military base is about the size of an airport, mm. um, and it was an intense military environment, an acronym-rich environment. There were just acronyms flying around everywhere, and people getting around in uniform and um, beyond the wire. Um, uh, a very complicated um, tribal, almost feudal society, uh, very competitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, warlords from different tribes, in a sense, vying for uh, influence, um, uh, land, water, whatever resources there were, were, were subject to competition. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but a profoundly different culture. You know, I'd worked in places like Bogan, Bougainville, Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, where you know, they speak English and they listen to the same sort of music as we do and they play rugby league and there are all those commonalities. But, um, you know, this was subsistence agriculture, 5% literacy, uh, Pashtun yeah. language um, and a heavy overlay of Islam, of course. Yeah. So uh, whenever you talk to people, you talk to interpreters. Yeah. Every conversation takes three times as long as you think it will and you're never quite sure whether you've reached an understanding. So... Yeah. Uh, uh, and you know, in a place like that, you can, if you, if you're humble and sensible, you know that you only know twenty percent of what's going on around you. Mm. Um, so um, uh, that's in a sense why I called the book "The Dust of Uruzgan." The dust was was there, but it was also for it's me a, a metaphor me- as well. A metaphor for the opaqueness of mm. the society. Mm. And so um, you you've actually there's a wonderful um, documentary made of your trip over there. Mm. Tell us about the documentary and how that came about. Australian Story uh, did a piece on me um, which came out in October of 2013. It's it's short, it's 27 minutes but really nicely edited. Um, Fairly accurate? (laughs) Flattering, (laughs) put it that way. (laughs) So yes, accurate of course. Of course. Um, (laughs) 
But what I liked about it, I think, it was it told other stories. It talked about you know some of the sacrifices that have been made over there, and my relationship with the parents of some of the soldiers I've written songs about. And mm. It told a broader story, um, which I was happy to be part of. And and you must have forged some very strong relationships while you were over there. How long were you there for? Two years total in the end. I spent eighteen months there in two thousand nine and ten, and then went back in two thousand thirteen at the end of the mission. Was there much? progress or any difference between those two times yeah I mean yeah. over those over the period of time we did make quite a difference to the place in terms of the spread of security that we were able to provide and the, the spread of the Afghan security services and roads and on the back of that roads schools hospitals from a very low base you know the the Uruzgan that we came to in 2006 was uh, you know three or four hospitals for a population of, I don't know, 250,000. When we say hospitals, we mean not much at all. Yes. Uh, very little schools. Not hospitals as we know them. Potted no. roads. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, we couldn't get past about a kilometre north of Tarrant Cap for, for the density of the Taliban there. Wow. And the people in the valleys of the province wanted our help to get the Taliban out. I mean, they're essentially bullies. They've, they work through intimidation. And we were pr- able to provide a buffer between... Uh, the, the community and, and them. It's almost, I think, for citizens um, like me, and I know there are many like me, it's it's almost a surreal, you know, it's not really anything known in our own world. And I think we've only got the media and the, and the movies. There was a movie about Murphy's War, was it? No, what, what war was it? It was a, an American movie about Afghanistan and how how little the American government even knew, the people in you know governing, knew about Afghanistan. Mm. Oh, it's and a, you know it's a totally different world. I mean, what we've created in a place like Australia is unnatural but fantastic. You know, yeah. governments that are you know accountable and and, and more or less honest. Um, yeah. On the we're, whole, we, we and, don't realise how lucky we are. No, and a court system to resolve differences and police to. You know, police Rather who are accountable. Guns. Yeah, but the, in absent all that, you get Afghanistan, and yeah. that's why we can need to continue to invest mm. in the infrastructure think, of the state. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, we hear a lot about our, our budget deficit and all this sort of thing, but really, we're a very wealthy nation when you think about mm. when you make comparisons. And I heard a, a really interesting talk on the ABC about how if you look at all the trouble spots in the world. Is where there are too many people and not enough resources, and yeah. we don't have that. that no, issue, that's that's plausible. There are yeah. there are Malthusian factors at play. I think. Yes, yes. No, and that's and that's what you learn when you go to a place like Afghanistan. Is you you, you know, we go to these places with our own you know our own agendas, where whether yeah. it be counter terrorism or, mm. or, um, or or whatever it might be. But in fact, mm. through local eyes, they see us as a source of. Um, power and resources in the context of their own struggle against one another and if you don't appreciate that then you're going to get led around by the nose yeah so um tell me about uh this book when did this book when did you first um come up with the idea of writing this book um is it something that that came to you while you were over there or um you know tell us about the inspiration for it in my first tour there, for 18 months in 2009, I wrote a dozen songs, recorded an album called Dust of Uruzgan, 
and um, toured them. Which I've purchased and listened to, and oh, I good. think you should too, yes. <laughs> listeners, because it's brilliant. Yeah, great. And, and um, you know, I toured and, and started to develop a bit of a profile playing those songs around. And then I went back to Afghanistan in 2013. When I was there, I got an email from Jane Palfreyman at Alan Unwin, who'd seen me play and said, oh. I think you've got a book in you. And oh, so fabulous. I got back to her and said, oh, this looks like hard work. I mean, I, I, I actually never thought of writing a book. It just seems, for a songwriter, it just seems like an extremely inefficient form of artistic expression. <laughs> you know, it takes a long time to write, a long time to read. Although we have a massive tome here, 395, oh, 395 pages. Right, the contract so, said 70,000 to words, but I ended up with right. 120 and sent it to them and said, do your worst, edit it. And they said, no, no, we think it's... We think there's no fat, we'll keep it. That's fantastic, isn't it? That was gratifying, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, for a writer, quite often we lose a third or a half of what we've written when the editing process goes through. So that's um, that's a tribute to your writing skills. Well, I was prepared to... You know, one of the things you learn in the public service is humility in the face of editing. (laughs) But it wasn't required in the end. I had a little help from my friends. I, I... when I was writing it, as I went along, I sent every chapter to a colleague called yeah. Jeff Apter, who writes right. musical biographies, and right. he, he, I'd send him 8,000 words, he'd send back six. Oh, right, so you cheated. <laughs> yeah, I did it as I went. So you did a little bit of it. Yeah, I had a little help, right. help from a That's friend, okay. yeah. That's okay, very kind, help from our friends. On the back of the book, it says, um, with remarkable insight and humour, the Dust of Uruzgan recounts the setbacks and successes of a contingent of Australian soldiers, diplomats and aid workers struggling to make a difference in a place where truth and clarity were often buried and where too many young Australians perished in the dust of Uruzgan. So I suspect this memoir has um, moments of great grief, but you've countered that with humour which is so important in, in tough times, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and it's also accurate. You know, you had a bunch yeah. of people getting around in the desert trying to do difficult work. A lot of funny stuff happened. And yes. it was a lot of fun. War is a lot of fun until it isn't. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> and when it isn't, true. isn't it? You know, the, the yeah. documented you know, the deaths of a number of soldiers there yes. uh, and, and, and the grief that was felt on the base by people around me and... And there were a lot of sad moments, but there was a lot of funny stuff too. It was a very yeah. funny place. Yeah, you have to listen to um, Fred's song about the Dutch. <laughs> That's just hilarious. What's that song called? It's called Niet Swafflen op de Dixie. It's just a song they had to write to entreat Dutch soldiers to desist from doing unspeakable things in the portaloos. <laughs> we won't say any more. It's fantastic. Um, so... Tell me about the Aussie soldiers that um, that were fighting there. Did you find them, um, you know, I mean, I, I assume that there was a range of different soldiers, but uh, quite a strong contingency of special forces. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, no, that's right. So we had uh, a range of soldiers working there. We had engineers working on sort of reconstruction work, uh, schools, hospitals, roads, mm-hmm. infantrymen training up the... Um, Afghan National Army and then in a separate sort of part of the base were Australian Special Forces soldiers doing what they do. Did you find that um, with the Special Forces, I mean at the TEDx event where I, where I discovered you there was an ex-Special Forces Marine uh, from the US and um, talking about PTSD and, and the incredible effects of, of such service. 
Um, I think we're starting to recognise that in Australia very slowly. We had um, that book um, that was Exit Wounds by mm. John Cantwell. John Cantwell, yeah. Have you read that? Is that, is that very accurate? From your experience, I haven't read it, but I went no. and saw John speak, and I, and I met him when I was over there. In fact, I attended a a ramp ceremony one day where he, after the death of two soldiers, and he'd just gone and visited the, the, their remains in the in the morgue, and he came and spoke, and uh, he started out sort of cold and rational, but ended up in tears, and on, up there on the podium, I remember it very well, mm. uh, standing on the podium in front of uh, five hundred soldiers in tears. Uh, he was deeply affected by his own experiences and experiences he's had before. Mm. So look, no, no, the the, the post traumatic stress disorder thing is real, and um, and many are affected by it. Um, mm. um, not just special forces. I mean, also the combat engineers do working day in day out looking for bombs uh infantry obviously but but the special forces guys did a number of rotations one of the things we know about ptsd is it is a cumulative thing and those guys often did four five six rotations and uh the chances of you being exposed to bad bad events is increased with that of course and um and and it became a lifestyle for them for a while um Mind you, they got paid well, but some of them yeah. are paying a price for it. Well, that's right. It's different prices to pay. Um, the aid workers, I suppose, also go through similar sorts of things. Yeah. And uh, and what about the um, the diplomats like yourself? You said you were the first. Yeah, I, I worked solo initially for the first hmm. year. But um, in in middle of 10, we took over a thing called the Provincial Reconstruction Team from the hmm. Dutch when they left, and we had five diplomats there at any time. Five or six Oz um, mm. aid officers, as they were then, they're now yeah. part of DFAT. And um, no, I mean most of us, I think, got out of it okay. But one of the two of us didn't. You know, one of my colleagues, David Savage, mm. took over from me. I had a job up at the Ford operating bases for a while, and he took over from me. And he was walking along the same street that I walked every day. One day, and he was approached by a twelve-year-old boy who detonated a suicide vest and. Dave survived, but cop sixty ball bearings in the back of his legs, and uh, you know, he's eighteen operations later, he's horrendous. Yeah, mm. no, bad things can happen. So, um, are you likely to go back there again, or, or is that not known? It's an unknown. Well, I had a little daughter a month after I got back from my second stint, and that changes the calculus yes. and the domestic politics too. <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> we won't go there. So um, let's go back to the book. Tell me how, what was your process in, in writing the book? Were you, um, how accurate is it? Um, you know, have you used poetic license in places? Um, you know, were there things that were confidential that you, you couldn't put in the book? Um, what, I mean, I, I, I'm not, I can't begin to imagine the difficulties of writing about a politically sensitive um, situation like this. Well, to start with, if you look up there, you'll see two foot worth of diary. I'm a, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm, there's I'm, red books there. Yeah, I'm a natural diary keeper, so there right. was a lot of detail and too much detail, more than I could use. So oh. that was the, the primary source of, of, of stuff, and I didn't I make see. a lot up. In the end, um, I gave the book a, a pretty tidy piece of architecture to start with. Every chapter goes to explaining how I wrote one of the songs that I wrote when I was there. Yes. 
and that gives it an architecture and beyond that it's chronological so events unfold chronologically so having that sort of structure gave me the constraints I needed to not get lost and I didn't get lost at any point. And actually that's probably the best way to go about that because really the songs you wrote would have been about the events that that touched you most. Absolutely and each song some couple of the songs are seven minutes long but most of them are four or five but there was I, I was aware there was a backstory to each which was almost infinite you know it was yeah. there was a great you know yeah. there was, and uh, uh yeah no so I ended up having a lot to say yes and at the end of the book I offer some you know broader reflections on what it was all about I think mm. uh as you, as you mentioned earlier I don't think Australians understand it not because not at all I, I, I think you know that's been my experience of touring the show is that yeah. people say look you know the great show I I learnt more from two hours of your show than I have from 15 years of media coverage and it's partly that's, to that's do that's not a good thing is well it? I, I mean why are we so ignorant I think the media cycle things? is short and sharp you know you get 30 seconds of footage every time a soldier gets killed and and that's about it you know, uh, and many of the people in the media probably wouldn't know a lot more than most of us anyway. It takes a bit of time to understand yeah. it. You know, I, 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 I don't, I wouldn't want to dis- be too dismissive. There was a recent, reasonably good documentary series that came out recently on ABC about it. That wasn't yeah. bad. Yeah. Although it, it but of course, there are some journalists who go in deep. And there are good journalists. Yeah, yeah there are good ones. Of course, there are some who are who are, who are just out to whip up controversy, but there are others yeah. who go into comprehend and respect yeah. confidences and tell and a that story. And media cycles, it's, it's very unfortunate because well, we, it's don't, just, we don't, don't get the depth we used to get. I think that's yeah. right. It's just short. It's yeah. short and sharp and people's yeah. attention spans at the ground. But in any case, it's a complex It's a complex story. It's not an easy no. story. You know, that's right. I, I could explain it in a two-hour show because I've been there and because two hours is enough time to explain it. Yeah. Mind you, if you think you understand Afghanistan, it hasn't been explained properly to you in the first place. So, <laughs> so I just, uh, you know, it's, working there is, is yeah. said to be akin to removing layers of blindfolds as you go along. Oh um, my goodness! But you, yeah. you do you do develop a sense of it as as mm. you spend time there, and um, and I think I've been able to convey that in the book and in, and in my shows. Going back to the book, there's a uh, there's a section here called "Woman in a War." Tell us about your experience. There. Of women there? Yeah. Well, you know, as far as the local women go, you know, I was working down in the south, in the Pashtun south, uh, deeply conservative. I worked there for a year without meeting an Afghan woman. Wow. They are not in public life. Uh, they're increasingly in public life. I mean, yes. you know, the, the, the Afghan parliament now has 40 female members of the compulsory quota. Mm-hmm. And so in Kabul, that was the first time I met an Afghan woman. Um, wow. uh, much less conservative, but conservative nonetheless. Yeah. But um, so yeah, they're not that prominent. But having said that, I've written a couple of my songs from the point of view of Afghan women. But what I know about them, I only got from reading. Uh, and there are good books around, like A Thousand Splendid Sons and and, and others, mm-hmm. which give you an insight into their insight. world. Yeah. Uh, and it's not an happy world. Uh, it's a tough world for women yeah. in Afghanistan. That's right. And there are some brilliant. Um photographs in the book um, mm. full colour photographs and um, so the Malala Girls School Malala Girls School yeah yeah. Uh, one, of the, one of the projects that, that AusAid and, and the ADF punched out while we were there was a girls school in Tarrant uh, it took a while 
it took four or five years to build it, but one week once we built it, you know, there were seven hundred girls there. Uh, Afghans want to educate their girls. And and the other thing, uh, the Boxing Day test. The Boxing they Day are playing, test. Playing cricket. I yeah. just thought that was that was amazing. Some oh, they love cricket in Afghanistan. Quite amazing. Yeah. Um, but then again, you've got those photos that you expect to the 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 ones that you see on the media, and, mm. you know, mm. with the soldiers and the Ramp stuff. ceremonies. And of course the um, the um, uh, funerals, I suppose. Yeah, we call them ramp ceremonies because yeah, well, it's the process. You know, it's a process. We have a memorial service, then the coffin is carried through the streets of um, the base to the airstrip, and where they go up the ramp of the aeroplane. And there's lots of photos of you, of course, doing concerts. Um, Farewell to the Dutch one. Did you sing that song to them? I did. The Dutch have (laughs) a dry sense of humour. They they get our jokes, fortunately, for me. What about? And I noticed that you've got, um, you know. You've got a lot of Afghans sitting around. How did they take your concerts? Did they understand anything or, or you know, the people there, did they speak English? Well, I, when I played enough? when I yeah. played with Afghan musicians or two Afghans, yeah. it was a very different approach. It was more about feel and rhythm and, and uh, release yeah. and intensity. And so I put together a couple of bands with Afghan guys, but it was, it was very much about creating an excuse for people to dance around the floor. <laughs> Which is, that's a, a universal language, isn't it? People understand that. And music and, no, absolutely. Yeah. And we had some great um, concerts and parties there. There's yeah. some interesting instruments here. What what kind of instruments are they playing there? I can't recognise oh, them. One's, you know? one's a sort of djembe drum arrangement. The other is mm. called a rhubarb. Yeah, very uh-huh. very Central Asian instruments. Yeah. Yeah, but, and, and did you learn some of their music? While you were there? Well, I played with them, but I didn't play their instruments. It's another no. level of complexity. And their, I mean, their musical world is so completely different to ours. We, you know, we're all about chord changes and harmonies and lazy backbeats and the occasional waltz time, but they only have sort of one beat. It's one, 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 insistent yes. and very few chord changes, but right. complex rhythms and right. a lot of narrative in their songs. Right. I remember one band I played with from Kandahar, the band showed up and they had a keyboard and a rhubarb and a couple of traditional instruments and drums and yeah. uh, but then they had a guy you know with a moustache and a suitcase and in his suitcase were a whole bunch of notebooks which contained lyrics to songs How wonderful. which i think you know many of which he wrote or were and were yeah. about local situations yeah. so it's, it is a very narrative tradition up there yeah well i think um i think that's a universal thing to storytelling it's absolutely. in our dna isn't oh, absolutely, it absolutely yeah. whatever culture you come it's from how we comprehend the world mm. So um, there's a lovely photo here of Marianne and Olympia. Yeah. Tell us about Marianne and Olympia. Well, um, Marianne, of course, tolerated my wife, tolerated my absences all throughout, and uh, and worse yet, tolerated the writing of the book. It's not family-friendly activity book writing, no, I found. it's not. <laughs> I mean, my marriage has improved since I finished the bloody thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, we... we when I arrived for my second stint in Afghanistan in May of 2013, uh, I, I sorted my bed space out and organised things, and I called home, and she said, I'm pregnant. <laughs> oh, it's <laughs> so exciting. Yeah, well, it was. First you know. child. Yeah. yeah, no, at the age of, you know, 44 or 45 or whatever yeah. it was, it was, it was a lucky, lucky, uh, happy, happy, happy coincidence. And, um, and yeah, no, so my daughter Olympia was born a couple of months after I got back. Yes. And so that's changed your your whole perspective, and uh, I suppose is there a second book in you, or will that have to wait? 
Uh, I think I would only write a book if I had something to say. That's sensible. <laughs> I like that answer. It's very compact but real. So tell us about why people should go out and buy this book. And it's Alan and Unwin, by the way, the publisher, The Dust of Uruzgan, U-R-U-Z-G-A-N. Well, you know, it's a ripping yarn and people who've read it have enjoyed it for that. Um, but beyond that, it, it does offer an, uh, some a lens through which you can comprehend yeah. the experiences of 20,000 young Australians in southern Afghanistan. And I think it's yeah. important that we understand their experiences. We don't need to lionise them, we don't need to pity them, but no. if we understand their experiences, there's a better chance that they won't walk the land as strangers in a way that a generation of Vietnam veterans did. That's right. But beyond that, of course, you know, there's other things that I think haven't been teased out in the Australian media. For example, one of the things I noticed when I got to Afghanistan was there was a lot of Afghans there. And I wanted to explore, <laughs> explain their perspective on the whole thing too, yes. you know, because uh, we they're, never not, hear that they're not crazy, no. you know. They're no. just people uh, who've lived through 30 years of civil war. This is a survivalist culture. They're rational people making, mm-hmm. generally rational people, making decisions about how they're going to survive in a very difficult environment. And uh, I, I hope to, um, you know, offer, offer, offer a bit of their history just to... And their perspectives, just to such as I understood them to, to explain why so things were I, I the way they are. I think the value of the book then is, is is a key to understanding what it's all about, mm. and you know why we're there and what we're doing. Mm. There were reasons, you know. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't, you know, I was involved in protests against their involvement in Iraq. I thought that was a bad idea, but there were reasons why we were there, and and uh, we played a constructive role while we were there. We made mistakes with the international community. Mm. made a lot of mistakes there, but on the whole, we've left the place better than we found it. Um, mm-hmm. And, of course, it, it goes on. You know, there are still mm. 15,000 uh, international troops there, 270 Australians, mm. and we'll need to remain committed there mm. uh, almost for, in, for, a time, for a long time. Yeah, if, mm. if, if we pull out, it'll fall apart. We'll get Syria. Um, mm. Uh, if we can hold it together, and it's mm. more or less holding together, uh, mm-hmm. um, then there's another generation coming through. Mm. 75% of Afghans are under the age of 25. They don't want the wow. tribal feudalism. They want no. iPhones. <laughs> <laughs> iPhones, right. <laughs> That's a success story in itself, isn't it? <laughs> well, there's now 12 million mobile phones in Afghanistan. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. Um iPhones above food and shelter almost. Uh, well, look, there are communicative bunts, you know. It's, mm. it's, it's, uh, mm. Papua New Guinea, the same. These tribal societies, yeah. people survive by communicating. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The jungle vine has just got quicker. <laughs> it's amazing. Absolutely extraordinary. Well, I, you know, I could talk to you all day because you are such an interesting person and so talented, a great writer, a great musician, and uh, for everyone listening... This is really a book worth getting, um, a book of substance. Fred Smith, The Dust of Uruzgan. Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from www.aussiewriters.com.au and if you are a reader or a writer, then hop on over to our website and subscribe. Subscribe.